Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past. Welcome to another episode of Catholic History Trek. I'm your host, Scott Schulze, and while my regular co-host, Kevin Schmeising, is not with me today, I do have perhaps the next best thing, a picture of a yellow chassis system EMD GP40 engine. Okay, perhaps not the next best thing. But anyway, if you are familiar with the 1979 movie The Jerk, you may recall a scene where Naven is on the phone with the police. He's tied a rope between a car of thieves and a church to keep them from getting away in their vehicle. As he is on the phone, the vehicle attempts to make its getaway, and Naven tells the police on the phone, Um, they may not be here exactly when you get back, but it's a blue Chevy two-door, and it will be going south on Hurtado Street. No, I can't make out the license number, but uh, it'll be pulling a small church. So, any blue Chevy pulling a small church? I figure that'd be the one. So what do a diesel-electric engine and this scene from a 40-year-old movie have to do with our topic for this episode? Well, more than you may think. Our topic is trains. More specifically, trains pulling churches. Actual functioning Catholic churches on the rails. That's right. Choo-choo! Here comes the church in this episode of Catholic History Trek. A century and a half ago, traveling the countryside was a venture that had been unchanged for most of human history. Either you walked, rode an animal, or were pulled by an animal. Roads of brick and stone may have been available in well-established cities, but traveling the countryside was a trek across rough or non-existent trails. Air travel did not exist yet, and cars were merely a soon-to-be-invented novelty. Meaning, the only other means of human transportation in the late 19th century was rail travel. Trains were the great innovation which linked humanity, spanning great distances with speeds that weren't even imaginable for the first few millennia of humanity. Tracks soon spread across nations as rail companies emerged, seeking to take advantage of this new mode of travel. Not only did rails connect passengers and freight to new destinations, but innovative Christians soon realized the potential of the rails to aid in evangelizing the remotest children of God, previously unreachable by most missionary ventures. In the late 1880s, the Russian Orthodox Church was the first to capitalize on the advent of rails and operated five chapel cars pulled by steam engines along Tsarist Russia along the Trans-Siberian Railway. They say innovation is the greatest form of flattery, and by November of 1890, the first such chapel car had began rolling across North American railways. It was called the Cathedral Car of North Dakota and and had been commissioned by the Episcopalian Bishop of that state. Soon after, the Baptists joined the Episcopalians in using a few chapel cars as a way for preachers to bring church to the underchurched in areas too remote to have a permanent church building in place. At the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, Catholic priest Father Francis Kelly saw one of these Baptist chapel cars on display. It was one of the six Baptist cars in operation across the U.S. Years earlier, during a cross-country rail and lecture trip in 1893, Father Kelly later recounted how shocked he was by the fewness of Catholic church steeples he spotted along the way, to which he lamented, Alas, how few there were! Not one for every ten towns! There was certainly something wrong! By this time, there were tears in my eyes. Years later, spotting this chapel car at the World's Fair was to be the answer to his lament of being unable to spread the Catholic faith and to serve the Catholic population spread throughout a very rural and agrarian American nation of the time. 
1905, with the approval of Archbishop Quigley of Chicago, Father Kelly established the Catholic Church Extension Society, which is now simply called Catholic Extension, in an attempt to match the, evangel uh, the evangelization success of Baptist and Methodist Protestants, especially in the vast American West. A year later, Kelly promoted his idea for a Catholic chapel car in the Catholic Church Extension Society's magazine, simply titled Extension. In it, Kelly asked, if the Baptists can do it, why not the Catholics? Father Kelly's question was soon answered. Ambrose Petrie, who is president of his successful streetcar advertising firm, offered $2,000 for the society to purchase an old Wagner sleeper car being sold by the Pullman Company. Pullman executive Richard Dean joined Petrie in contributing an additional $8,000 to convert the sleeper car into a beautiful chapel. The completed chapel car was named the St. Anthony by Petrie in honor of St. Anthony of Padua and was adorned with a large painting of the saint prominently placed above the tabernacle. The 70-foot-long chapel car was part beauty and part function, was capable of holding 65 people for mass, had an altar built with many drawers to store vestments and sacred vessels, and the communion rail was movable to allow for the conversion to a confessional. Behind the altar, which was essentially in the middle of the car, with the pews on one side, on the other side there were several small rooms. There was a bedroom for the chaplain, a bedroom for the attendant, and a small kitchen and dining room. On June 16, 1907, the car was officially blessed by the bishop at the LaSalle Street Station in Chicago and began its evangelical mission. Interestingly, the project may have never even gotten off the ground as the apostolic delegate to the United States, Archbishop Falconio, vehemently opposed the idea of a Catholic chapel car when it was first proposed. He had previously been a Franciscan missionary, and Falconio objected to the idea that tra train cars were too luxurious of travel for missionaries. Pope Pius XI, sorry, Pope Pius IX overrode the apostolic delegate and gave his blessing to the venture. While the chaplain did get to ride the rails and see the country, and was privy to very nice home-cooked meals that were served when the chapel car reached destinations. Travel was anything but luxurious, as summer temperatures could reach well over 100 degrees inside the car when packed with warm bodies and burning candles for vespers or mass. And, as retold by formal ch former chapel car chaplain Father William O'Brien, as he wrote, cockroaches, swarms of bedbugs, and hungry mosquitoes were things that plagued the priest and his attendant living in the car. The chapel car was a huge success and often drew huge crowds of curious onlookers as well as Catholics. And there's many examples such as one time in Cincinnati where the crowd got so large the train station had to be closed. The chapel cars were able to bring a priest to underserved communities where the priest would offer mass, hear confessions, perform marriages, and administer other sacraments. The car was also used to transport and distribute huge quantities of Catholic literature along the rails. Many out-of-the-way churches were started upon the visit of the Catholic Extension Society's St. Anthony Chapel Car, such as being credited for 43 missions in the Portland, Oregon Archdiocese and another 41 in the Baker, Oregon Diocese. The chapel car also offered the traveling chaplain an apologetics opportunity to quell some of the more outrageous anti-Catholic sentiments that existed in a largely Protestant anti-Catholic America in early 20th century. Depending on the town the car visited, 
It could be met by welcoming Protestants or an intolerant cold shoulder, and sometimes even downright hatred. Such as cases when the KKK would organize and promote anti-Catholic propaganda in advance of the arriving chapel car. Some questions and strange claims recorded by the chaplains who rode the chapel car included some of the following. Protestants remarking how surprised that the priest was even allowed to speak to them. A Protestant man insisting that Jesus brought the Bible with him when he came down from heaven. The priest answering the question, do priests have hooves like cows? To which the priest took off his shoe to show he was a regular human being. And also answering, is it true a priest has to kill four people before he is ordained? The priest answered, haven't, convict, haven't been convicted of murder yet, but if people are so dumb as to believe such things, it wouldn't hurt to knock off a few of you tonight. Despite the many successes, the St. Anthony, like many other chapel cars of the era, came to the end of the line around World War I. Before the Great War, railroad companies would pull the chapel cars of all religious denominations free of charge. But during the war, the Government Railroad Administration determined that chapel cars were private cars, and therefore they would have to pay for their own way. This proved to be too expensive, and so during World War I, the St. Anthony was parked on a siding in Portland, where it served as a makeshift church. After the war in 1920, it was moved near Fallbridge, Washington, which is now called Wishram, which is located on the Oregon-Washington border. One story relates that the locals of Fallbridge, who had no church, desperately wanted to make the idle chapel car into their church, so they went so far as to build tracks from where the, train, where the chapel car was parked to a lot in the middle of their town and then moved the chapel car to its new site. Eventually, homes and trees blocked the route between the car and the main line, keeping the chapel car in Fallbridge. Ultimately, a permanent church was built in the town and the altar, pews, vestments, sacred vessels, and glass were cannibalized while the old sleeper car was left to rot and disintegrate. While the St. Anthony may have been the first Catholic chapel car, there were two others in service with the Catholic Church Extension Society during the early 20th century, the St. Peter and the St. Paul. Dayton, Ohio businessman Peter Kuntz, who ran a successful lumber company, had seen the St. Anthony and knew of its success. He approached Father Kelly of the Extension Society and insisted he would build them a second car, and that was exactly what he did. But instead of refurbishing an old wooden sleeper car, Kuntz donated $25,000 to have a new steel car built, which was considered to be one of the longest railroad cars in the world when it was completed. The St. Peter was dedicated in Dayton, Ohio, and began its service in 1912. In addition to its typical work on the rails, it was also displayed at the 1915 Panama Pacific Exhibition in San Francisco, coupled with the Baptist chapel car called Grace. A couple years after the St. Peter was in operation, Mr. Kuntz dropped by into the Catholic Church Extension Society's Chicago headquarters and asked how the St. Peter was doing. Upon hearing it was doing splendidly, he immediately left while claiming he would build them another. And as quickly as he'd showed up, Mr. Kuntz left the building and began the second chapel car. In 1915, the second car, the St. Paul, was dedicated in New Orleans and began its service, which lasted into the 30s or the 50s, depending on which source you use. The St. Peter typically operated for the Catholic Extension Society in the north and west of the United States, while the St. Paul typically operated in the southern states. It spent its first three years in Louisiana before venturing further out to states like Texas, Oklahoma, and North Carolina. Eventually, 
the St. Paul was sent to the Diocese of Great Falls, Montana for their use. In the 1960s, it was placed into a railway museum, but unfortunately seems to have made its way to the Escanaba Lake Superior Railroad, which is a short line operating in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan towards Green Bay, Wisconsin. These three forgotten chapel cars, the St. Anthony, the St. Peter, and the St. Paul, faithfully served Catholics in the United States for several decades in the early 20th century, bringing Mass and the sacraments to a difficult-to-reach and scattered Catholic population. Unfortunately, as best I can find, it does not appear that any of these chapel cars is still in existence in a museum or anything where they can be admired or viewed any longer. So the best, unfortunately, the best we have is looking at photos on the internet or photos from the Catholic Extension Society. As tempting as it is to end this episode with either a train horn, train whistle, or even the ringing bell of a train crossing, I'll end this episode how Kevin and I normally do, praying the Glory Be prayer in the church's traditional language of Latin. Gloria Patriot Filio, Spiritui Sancto, Sicuturat in Principio et Nunc et Semper, et in Saecula Saeculorum. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at Catholic History Trek at gmail.com.